pray. Father, how good it is to be in the house of the Lord this morning with your people. This is the most blessed day of the week for us because we love to be here with you. Not that we are not with you or that you are not with us all through the week, but, oh, Father, we know that your church, your people, when they gather, you are here in the midst and even here in this book of Hebrews that we are studying. Lord, you have said that when we sing God's praise, you stand in the congregation and sing with us. And so this indeed is a blessed time. I pray, Father, that it would not just be a blessed time, but a faithful time. That the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable to you because we make it our ambition, whether we are at home or absent, to be pleasing to you. And so be pleased, Father, with this time. Be merciful to us because of our sin. Be gracious to us because without your grace we cannot stand, let alone worship. And so receive our praise this morning, Father, as people whose sins have been blotted out because of the precious blood of our high priest, the perfect sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll give you praise for it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. I know that there are a number of visitors with us here this morning, so I want to explain to you uh, what we do during this hour. Uh, it won't be a full hour because I don't have that much time left, but we come to this part of the service to hear from God, to hear from His Word. We don't typically preach topical messages, although I say that this week knowing that the next two weeks will be topical for obvious reasons. But typically we go verse by verse through a text of Scripture and through a book in the Bible, and we are studying the book of Hebrews together. This is the 38th message in that series. We are in chapter 9. And the reason we do that is because we believe God has said everything that needs to be said in His Word. We are motivated by a desire to be pleasing to the Lord in everything, and the only way we know to do that is to dig from His Word what He has said. We are not purpose-driven. We are not out to find our best life now. We want to know more about the excellencies of Christ. And we want the knowledge of His excellencies to change us, believing what the Apostle Paul said when he told the church at Corinth that by looking intently at the glory of God in the face of Christ, they and we would be changed into his likeness from glory to glory. We become what we behold. And so we want to behold the living God. And so week after week after week we come and we ask the Lord to give us eyes to see and what the Spirit has to say to His church through His Word. And so this morning, we just continue in what we have been studying so far, asking the Lord to use it to change us. And so we are in Hebrews 9. 
And so I would like for you to begin with me at verse 15. This is the same text we read last week. It is jumping right into the middle of the context. I don't have time to give you that context again. We did that last week. You can download that from the website. But just begin with me from verse 15. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, speaking of Jesus, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is, not val- is valid only when men are dead. For it is never in force when the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats and the water and the scarlet wool and the hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one might, also, one might almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that 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 is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once... At the consummation of the ages, he has been manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for man once to die, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. We've been trying to answer the question because the text poses it. Why did Jesus have to die? I know we're in a season when we're talking about his birth, but really he came to die. Why did Jesus have to die? Now we could go all over the scriptures and look for answers to that. But again, we just want to take God's word for what it says and so what does the author of Hebrews tell us? Well, I, suggest, I suggested last week that this question would have been especially important to the original Jews who were receiving this letter. Because as Jews, they were looking for a Messiah who would come in glory and in majesty and in great power. He would be the one upon whom upon whose shoulders would rest the government of the world. Because the prophet Isaiah had said... 
There would be no end to the increase of his government or his peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts would accomplish this. That's a pretty clear prophecy, isn't it? Nothing terribly ambiguous about what he was saying. We don't interpret it allegorically. The Messiah will come and he will be the great ruler. Not only that, but Israel knew well Psalm 110, and the author of Hebrews quotes from it many times in this book in a previous argument here. Psalm 110, the messianic psalm that says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Rule in the midst of your enemies. And in chapter 1 of Hebrews, verse 13, the apostle who's writing this, the person who's writing this, we don't know who that person was, but the author of this book was trying to communicate to the readers that the Lord Jesus Christ is greater than the angels. And he appeals to this text by saying, to which one of the angels did the Lord ever say, sit at my right hand, so while you watch and wait as I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? None. Are they not ministering spirits? And yet he is very God of very God. This is the Christ that Israel was waiting for, however. This was to be her Messiah. Even the apostles anticipated that the man they were following around the country was soon to overthrow Rome and set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. That's why in Matthew 20, verse 21, the mother of James and John came to Jesus and said, Lord, command that you're in your kingdom that these two sons of mine may sit, one at your left hand and one at your right. Now, was she thinking eschatological thoughts at that time? No, she thought her kids were going to be co-prime ministers under the, the world ruler, the Messiah. And in Luke 19, verse 11, Jesus knew what they were thinking. He kept telling them explicitly, but they had ingrained in their mind these selective scriptures so deeply that they couldn't even comprehend Jesus saying, it's not going to be that way. It's not going to be that way, not yet. And so when he's coming to Jerusalem, Luke 19, verse 11 says, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. They suspected that Jesus was going to march into Jerusalem and set up his throne. And even after his resurrection, they still didn't understand. They thought, well, we didn't understand the whole thing about the death, but now that he's raised again, we're back on schedule. Acts chapter 1, verse 6, when Jesus appeared after the resurrection, the disciples asked, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore you the kingdom to Israel? It's not that they were misinterpreting the Old Testament scriptures. It was just that they could not fathom or imagine how it all worked together. They couldn't understand the timing of it. If you go to a Bible college or seminary, they'll explain it like this. The prophets made their prophecies. And to us, we need to understand that looking over those prophecies is like looking at the, 
at the peaks of several mountains, all lined up. They look like one after another, after another, after another, after another, and they look real close. But in reality, there's big, deep valleys in between that you can't see. And that's the way it is with many of the prophecies. We see a prophecy and we say, well, it must be just about to be true. This seems so clear, so explicit. We don't realize that God has things in between that he hasn't chosen to reveal to us. The secret things belong to the Lord. And so we wait and we trust and we hope and we do our best to understand the text while we're living faithfully and allowing God to be God. And there was a significant thing that Israel was missing and still misses today, the fact that Jesus, is, Jesus had come not to rule and reign, but to give his life as a ransom for many. The fact is, Jesus is going to come back. It's the reigning Messiah to rule on the throne of David. But the time for that has not yet come. And when Jesus arrived in Bethlehem that first Christmas morning, the assignment was not to overthrow one superpower of the world so that he could set up another. But simply his assignment was to humbly serve as the high priest of our souls. Not after the order of Aaron, but according to the order of Melchizedek. As an eternal priest, he was to offer himself once for all a perfect sacrifice to bring perfect forgiveness to all who would believe. Now I understand, just as a side here, that Melchizedek is a complicated issue. We've already been through it. The question came up this week about Melchizedek again. Let me see if I can summarize that whole issue with Melchizedek in just a couple of sentences. You need to understand. That's funny, right? A couple of sentences. I heard somebody laugh. Um, these Jewish writers were, were uh, uh, readers were being introduced to concepts that they thought they knew, but now that they were being persecuted, it wasn't as clear anymore. And so the author is coming back trying to show them reasons, biblical reasons, show them from their own scriptures why it is a good idea and it's logical and reasonable to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And one of those issues was, how can Jesus be, um, how can he ever serve as a high priest? You're saying that he's a high priest. How could he ever serve as a high priest? He came from the tribe of Judah. And in order to be a high priest, you have to come from the tribe of Aaron, uh, Levi, through Aaron, you have to be a son of Aaron. That's the order of Aaron, the priestly order of Aaron. And so the author knows if he is going to say that Jesus is the high priest of our souls, then he needs to go back in the Old Testament, in the book itself, understanding that this is our authority, and demonstrate from the Bible that it would be possible for the Lord to be pleased with a priesthood that does not follow the priesthood of Aaron. And so he goes back into the book of Genesis and shows them that Melchizedek was a priest, not after Aaron, he was way, 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 way before Aaron, because he had an encounter with Abraham, the father of Israel. And this priest was very similar to the Christ for these reasons. Number one. He had no genealogy, no idea where he came from. 
If you were going to be a priest in Israel, you had to know your genealogy because you had to demonstrate you were from Aaron, uh, from Levi through Aaron. But he, like the Christ, had no genealogy. Not only that, but there's nothing said about his death either. We know very little. And that's a perfect picture of the Christ. We don't know where he came from, really. From eternity? What does that mean? And where does he go after that? To eternity? What does that mean? It means he's God. And Melchizedek was priest of the Most High God. And so the author is simply saying, we have precedent for this. When I tell you that Jesus came to be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek and not Aaron, understand there is biblical precedent for this. He was priest of the Most High God. And if you have a hard time swallowing that, then think about this, Israel. Your father, Abraham, paid this Melchizedek a tithe, and Melchizedek blessed him. And the author of Hebrews says, see? No one pays a tithe to someone who is not greater than himself, and the greater blesses the lesser. The lesser is blessed by the greater. And so we have biblical precedent for this kind of priesthood that Jesus is serving under. Does that make sense? Or is that clear as mud? I'm trying. Okay, let's move forward. Because we need to see that here at the end of Hebrews 9... And we find the author reasoning with his Jewish readers about why the Messiah had to die. And in verses 15 through 70, as we saw last week, the first point he makes is this. That death was necessary to activate the will which promised the eternal inheritance that they had longed for. Now, when I talk about will, I'm not talking about desire. I'm talking about a last will and testament. That's what he's referring to. The word for covenant here is the equivalent in English to will or testament. This is as if God, by the old covenant, gave Israel a last will and testament. It is the promise of the coming inheritance. And simply what the author is saying from verses 15 through 18 is this. We talked about this last week, so I'm just skimming it. It's simply this. In order for a will to be activated, the testator of the testament had to die. There has to be a death in order for the testament to be broken open and for the will to be activated. There had to be a death. And it had to be the death, not just of anybody, but the guy who promised, the guy who wrote the will, whoever the person is who wrote the will of promise, promising you an inheritance, that person had to die. And so the inheritance that God had promised his people could not be realized. It could not be activated until the death of God himself. Now that's an amazing truth. That is an amazing truth. The psalmist said about God that he humbles himself to look into heaven and into earth upon men. He humbles himself to look at the things that are in heaven. And then he humbled himself to become a man. 
so that he could die. So that all of the promises by which he promised us eternal inheritance would be activated. And that's why Paul can say these words in Romans chapter 8 verse 32. Turn there because I want you to see it. Romans 8.32. Many of you already have this memorized. Verse 31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And here's the relevant passage, verse 32. For he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? You know what Paul knows? Paul knows the only way we could receive an inheritance is for the testator of that inheritance to die. And now that he has died, all of God's promises to us are yes and amen. And so the first reason Jesus had to die was this, because a will requires a death. If the testator of the will did not die, then the beneficiaries of the will could not receive their inheritance, but Jesus did die. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. So that you, through his poverty, might become rich. We are a spiritually wealthy people, beloved. Because the will of the inheritance was activated for us on the day that Jesus died. But there are other reasons Jesus had to die. First, because a will requires a death. Secondly, because forgiveness requires blood. Now we pick up from last week in verse 18. Let me read it again. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood, for when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats and the water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you and in the same way he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with blood and according to the law one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness why did Jesus have to die Because forgiveness requires blood. I want you to turn in your Bibles with me back to Exodus 24. Because the author is referring to this time in Israel's history that we read about at length in Exodus 24. You remember this passage because two chapters earlier... Exodus chapter 20, four chapters earlier, sorry, never good at math, I'm just a poor lowly pastor. (laughs) Exodus chapter 20, we find Moses had brought Israel out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, came to Mount Sinai, 
And Moses went up the mountain. He met God. God gave him the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is the tenfold statement of the covenant. Thou shalt, and thou shalt not. And in Exodus 24, we find Moses presenting the covenant to Israel. I'd like to begin reading with verse 3. When Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. And so Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 20 pillars and Twelve tribes of, uh, for the twelve tribes of Israel. Twelve pillars for twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls and peace offerings to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar, and he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And so Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. This was the inauguration of the Old Covenant. The author of Hebrews is talking about the inauguration of the new covenant. And he's demonstrating that God is doing with the new covenant just what he did in the old covenant. He showed you at the beginning of the old covenant that there would be no forgiveness apart from the shedding of blood. And he's held true with that. He promised the new covenant. And then when it came, and it has come, when it came, it too was inaugurated with blood. This is where it all began for Israel. Israel had never seen anything like this before. In fact, this was the very point at which Israel became a nation. And so all of this was new. It was a new nation with new laws who lived in a new relationship with God, who has revealed to them a new name, Jehovah, under this, which was at the time, a new covenant. A covenant which the New Testament authors now speak of as the Old Covenant. So now, back in Hebrews 9, the author is explaining that just as the Old Covenant was inaugurated with blood, so the New Covenant is inaugurated with blood. God's pattern for establishing the covenant had not changed, but was consistent with what he had done before. The great difference, however, was that while the New Covenant required nothing more than a single sacrifice, the Old Covenant was immersed in blood for all of the centuries that it existed. Frankly, beloved, it's difficult to imagine how bloody and messy the old sacrificial system was. I mean, we cannot even imagine. One scholar reports that during the thousand-plus years of the Old Covenant, there were more than a million animals sacrificed. And so considering that each bull sacrifice filled a gallon of blood or two, and each goat a quart the Old Covenant truly rests on a sea of blood. And during the Passover, for example, 
A trough was constructed from the temple area out through the wall down into the Kidron Valley simply for the purpose of disposing of the sacrificial blood that was left over. It was a sacrificial plumbing system to dispose of the blood that was collected from the bulls and goats because there was so much of it it couldn't be used. Why was there the shedding of so much blood? You've got to know this, beloved. Why was there so much shedding of blood? For two reasons. First, because it was necessary to demonstrate how vehemently holy God hates sin. He takes sin more seriously than we could ever have comprehended of it were it not for the bloody sacrifices of the Old Covenant. For the wages of sin is death. We know that verse, but do we comprehend its meaning? Do we feel the weight of that statement? The wages of sin is death. And this is why on the... On the day that the priesthood of the tabernacle was instituted in Leviticus 10, God struck down Aaron's sons. The very first priests after the order of Aaron. The very sons of Aaron. Aaron being high priest and his two sons being priests under him. On the very first day of instituting the sacrificial system, God struck them dead. Why? Because they would, thought they would be clever with the way they offered the incense. And God said to Aaron, I will be treated as holy. And this is why on the day David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem. And he was doing it in an unbiblical manner on an ox cart. And Uzzah reached up his hand to steady the Ark because it was faltering. God struck him dead. I will be treated as holy. And in Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira lied about the price of land, when they came and presented their offering, God struck them dead. Why? Because I will be treated as holy. You say, well, why doesn't he strike us? That is exactly the question. Why doesn't he strike us? Don't look at these texts and say, that's not fair. No, you know what's not fair? The fact that I haven't been struck dead. That's not fair. That's not fairness. That's mercy. And the fact that he now gives me an inheritance, that's grace. Listen, you want a definition for those two words? Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. We have been rescued from the execution that was rightfully ours and have been adopted into the family of the judge and been given the inheritance that is for all of those who eagerly wait his appearing. 
because Jesus died. And to the Muslim world, this is a disgrace. They say, we love Jesus. We love Jesus more than you do. Because we don't believe he, that God ever put him on that cross. God would have never done that to his son. To which the author of Hebrews says, if he had not crushed his son, there would be hope for no one. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Beloved, we don't hold to a cheap grace. To the contrary, we believe in a violent and bloody grace. It is a grace that cannot overlook our sin, but it administers the due punishment of our sin upon another person. It's a grace that is costly. It costs the lives of millions of animals just to cover it temporarily. And then ultimately it costs the life of the very Son of God himself who forgave our sins permanently. If you're a Christian, then your life should be marked, beloved, by holiness. Simply because you understand something of what it costs to save you from the penalty of your unholiness. Hebrews 9.22 renders it this way. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Someone might ask, well, if blood was all that was required by God, could Jesus simply have cut his finger and we would have had the blood of Jesus and he wouldn't have had to die? The answer to that is no. It wasn't just the blood. There's no magic in the blood. The quantity of blood was not the issue. The issue is this, that by the shedding of his blood, he lost his life on our behalf. How do we know that? Because Leviticus 17.11, God was explaining the sacrifices and why there had to be the shedding of blood and by the way, they didn't do bloodletting in the sense that they would drain all of the blood of the animal. They didn't do that. They didn't hang the animal up until all the blood was gone. That wasn't the point. The point was, shed his blood until he's dead. Leviticus 17.11 says this, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood, listen, by reason of the life that makes atonement. It is the lost life of Christ through the shed blood of the Savior by which we are saved. His life for our lives. It wasn't necessary for all of his blood to be drained. It was only necessary that by the shedding of blood, the sacrifice would die. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Why did Jesus have to die? Because a will requires death. Because forgiveness requires blood. And then there's a third reason. Because salvation requires a substitute. These last few verses, verse 23 in Hebrews chapter 9, 
verse 23, for it was necessary for the copies of the things of the heavens to be cleansed with these, that is, the blood of bulls and goats, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter the holy place made with hands, a mere copy. We've already talked about how the tabernacle, the temple was merely a copy. The true tabernacle where God sits on his throne. Not made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into the heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year after year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have need to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, that's the cross, he has been manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for man once to die, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having offered himself once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. What's that all about? The whole point the author is making here is that Jesus is a greater high priest was made a better sacrifices for our sin, presenting his own blood in the true tabernacle of heaven before the very throne of God. In other words, the new covenant has come as promised. It is the reality that has come to replace the copy, the parable. Remember, we saw that the word for copy was parabole. The reality has come to replace the parable. The substance has come to replace the shadow. And it is the single sacrifice that came to replace the perpetual sacrifices that could never cleanse a guilty conscience. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying here. And all of the previous sacrifices simply foreshadowed the reality in the person of Jesus Christ who was to come. He's the sinner's ultimate and final substitute. His life alone could satisfy the just demands of God's law against sinners. Only he could bear the penalty for our sins. Why did Jesus die? Because a will requires a death. Because forgiveness requires blood. And because salvation requires a substitute. I want you to think about this, beloved. This may rock your world just a little bit. It's okay. No sinner has the capacity to satisfy the demands of God's law. That's why hell is eternal. Because sinful men and women could never pay the debt no matter how long they try. Not only that, but consider this. God never accepts sinners just as they are. God never accepts sinners just as they are. God is not satisfied with us. He cannot be satisfied with us. The only way he can ever relate to us is by means of a mediator. That's why in 
Chapter 7, verse 22, so much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And that's why in chapter 8, verse 6, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which he is enacted with better promises. And that's why in verse 15 of chapter 9, for this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant. Do you know what a mediator is? It's not a meteor. It's a mediator. A mediator is someone who stands between two parties who are at odds with one another. And in this case, God is at odds with us. We have sinned, and he is holy, and yet we demand entrance into his kingdom. And he says, no way. How will this ever be resolved? There must be a mediator. Why? Because he will never be satisfied with me. I could never fulfill his law. The only way we could ever relate to him and him to us was by means of a mediator. So when it says in verse 15 that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, we understand that it is by his priesthood and his sacrifice and his intercession and his merit that we relate to God. One author, one author put it like this. The idea that God accepts us as we are is patently unbiblical. You remember the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector? In the book of Luke, they went to the temple to pray. This is fascinating. Try to hang with me. We're all familiar with the tax collector's prayer, right? God, be merciful to me. A sinner. And Jesus said that man went home to his house justified. Now turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he, referring to Jesus, had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. And listen, to what? Make propitiation for the sins of the people. Make propitiation. Now, I won't bother you with the Greek here. All you need to know is this. Make propitiation is the exact same word as be merciful. God, be satisfied with this sinner through your mediator. God, do what you promised to do. I offer this sacrifice in the temple knowing that I can never merit anything with you. That my sin requires a death and not my own or I would be lost. God, be propitiated on my account. God, take the life of this animal and be satisfied. Lest I have no hope. Beloved, we need to learn to pray. When we talk about God being merciful to us in Christ, we know how to say that. 
Do we know how to say that? When the tax collector prayed, God, be merciful, he knew what he was saying. God, I've sinned against you. I'm putting myself under the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat for me. God, be satisfied. Let your attitude be toward me as it is toward those who are covered by the blood of the sacrifice. Be satisfied by me, with me because of the sacrifice and forgive me in your love and mercy. I bring you nothing but my sin. Are you saying there's nothing I can do to satisfy God? Let me tell you what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you as a believer can do nothing to please God. You can. We make it our ambition to be pleasing to the Lord. We can please Him. Every time we choose to obey His Word, every time we choose to do what's right, simply to honor Him, even despite our feelings, God is pleased. But He can never be satisfied. The just demands of his law can never be satisfied in us. They must be satisfied in a substitute. Why did Jesus die? Because a will requires a death. Because forgiveness requires blood. And because salvation requires a substitute. The reality is because of our sin, God's law is poised to condemn us. There is nothing we can do to avoid that. Because, verse 17, it is appointed for men to die once and then face judgment. But now God in his mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, has sent Jesus to die once in our place, as our substitute, to bear our sins in his body on the cross. Beloved, this is grace. This is grace. That God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is grace. In ourselves, we have no hope. God cannot simply overlook our sins. He would be unjust. They must be paid for. They must be redeemed. But praise God, in his mercy, he has provided the Redeemer. Why did Jesus have to die? A will requires a death. Forgiveness requires blood. And salvation requires a substitute. And the absolute amazing thing About this is that in the mystery of God's grace, he has seen fit to meet all of these requirements on our behalf. But that's not the end of the story. Very briefly here at the end, verse 28. And so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait him. Why did he throw that in? Well, there's something that we don't know as Gentiles living in this century. The end of the story is this, that on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when the high priest would enter in, guess what would happen? 
a crowd would gather outside. The faithful believers and the onlookers, the people who just wanted to see what the party was about. And they would all come with anticipation, standing outside the tent, waiting for the high priest to do what? He's taking the blood in. He's spilling it on the mercy seat. And now the question is, will he come out alive? Or will they have to drag him out by the rope that tradition says they tied to his feet in case he dropped dead in the presence of God and nobody could go in to get him? And so they all waited outside for the high priest to come out. And the high priest went in before the mercy seat, before the very face of God, to offer the sacrifice. And eventually, when he finally emerged from the tent, when he accomplished all that God had called him in there to do, he emerged victorious. And the people gave a shout and began to sing and dance and offer offerings of praise unto God. Why? Because our high priest has offered his sacrifice and God has received it on our behalf. And the author of Hebrews is saying, this Jesus who went into that tabernacle is one day coming out. And when he comes out, we all will rejoice to the praise of his glorious grace. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. That's what the new covenant is about. And that, beloved, is why Jesus had to die. We are a rich people. And we are unspeakably blessed if we could not afford to give one gift this Christmas, we would be an unspeakably wealthy people. If you don't believe that, then come with us the next time we go to Kazakhstan or to Haiti or into the jungles of Mexico where there are believers who have nothing and no more joy than we will ever know. Jesus had to die. He had to die because a will requires a death, because forgiveness requires blood, and because our salvation requires a substitute. Jesus is that substitute. And we are eternally His because of it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are excellent for all of these reasons. Father, give us eyes to see that, to not only see it and know it and cherish it, but to delight in it. Not that we can just repeat it back to make ourselves look smart but so that we can more adequately fall at your feet and worship you, our God, our King, our Savior. Oh, Father, by your Spirit, humble us and raise us up to worship you in spirit and in truth, with minds engaged and hearts aflame for your great glory. 
and for our own eternal joy. For we pray it in the name of our high priest, the Lord Jesus. Amen.